0: I definitely lost control of kind of like how things were going. And I didn't really, you know, fully grasp of all I knew was we were in control of the Kickstarter community and community is so important. And what ended up happening was there were just delay after delay after delay um, on the production front. We promised it would take one year. It took more than two years to deliver those, you know, 1,200 or 1,500 units. And in that extra year, you have no idea the kind of anger. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, if it fails you are
1: gonna be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly
0: you've gone beat? in Be kind, be kind, be kind.
1: Become a better person. Better leader, the better business. Go with your (laughs) gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is an episode exploring non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Essentially, NFTs are unique units of data that act something like a certificate of authenticity or a proof of ownership. Like how the deed to a house proves that you're really the owner. Except this is maybe a little bit more complicated than that. And whether or not you really understand what NFTs are, they've been in the news a lot lately. They're changing the way we think about arts and ownership itself. And actually at the top of the episode, you were listening to Joe Saavedra, the founder and CEO of Infinite Objects, a company in the business of printing videos. Okay, so if you remember Harry Potter, or like any of the Harry Potter films, there were all these framed pictures that were moving around and almost seemed alive. That's how you can imagine what one of these infinite objects products looks like. It's pretty crazy. In other words, Joe's current work involves moving digital artwork into physical spaces. Joe has been a hardware and software developer for 20 years, so I thought he'd be able to help me understand what the heck NFTs are and why they are so important. But before we can understand NFTs, we need a little perspective. And the story of how Joe first got into art and technology is a perfect place to start. I want to talk about the first business that you ever started and why. Can you take me back to seventh grade?
0: in uh, middle school, I was in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, growing up in uh, a very solidly middle class neighborhood uh, called Rogers Forge, right outside of Baltimore, like I said, and I loved dogs. I really, really wanted a dog my, uh, pretty much my entire childhood. I had always been asking my parents uh, to get a dog, and uh, they, they were not into the idea. The entire time, they were not into the idea to the point where my mom would tell me uh, that she was allergic to dogs, which I later found out was a lie. (laughs) Um, But I really, really wanted a dog so bad that I started to offer my neighbors—I would offer to walk their dogs for them—and I started to walk uh, my immediate neighbors. There was specifically one pair: a golden retriever and a poodle on one side, and on the other side, a, a, a husky. And I started to walk them like, you know, once or twice a week after school and then they, you know, offered me money, you know, they were like, well, you're taking the dogs out for 30 minutes twice a week. Like, you know, we'll pay you, you know, I think honestly it was $3 for 30 minutes is what they were paying. This is 1998 or something. So yeah, but not, not terrible for someone in school. And, uh, what ended up happening was they started to recommend me to other neighbors. And I started to get phone calls and requests to, to walk more dogs. And so probably by the summer of eighth grade, I had a book of maybe 50 clients, I'm going to guess. I had a huge ring of house keys and I had hired two of my friends to walk our, our neighborhood dogs. It honestly it became a business where I, I think that summer I made like over a thousand dollars. And I bought like a, a motorized scooter. You have this dog walking
1: experience. How does it like wrap up? What like, I guess like ended that endeavor? Or how did it fizzle out?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we actually moved. So when I was in ninth grade, we moved to California. So I, I was in Baltimore for most of my childhood. And then I went to high school in L.A., in Los Angeles. So, uh, yeah, at that point, I I had to say goodbye to all my clients. And all those dogs. And all those dogs. And I still remember all of them. I mean, now they're all past, I'm sure. But uh, on the good side is that after I raised my pre-seed of Infinite Objects in 2019, I adopted my own dog.
1: Joe was bitten by the entrepreneurship bug and had his first experience running a business. But just as Joe was entering those frustrating teenage years, his family moved. Right when his pursuits could have benefited most from the stability of one home and one school. Now, creatively and socially, Joe had suddenly found himself the smallest fish in a gigantic pond.
0: It was a horrific experience. Um, You know, I had just finished ninth grade. So that, if you can imagine, is the worst time to move. You just did freshman year. You just figured out this whole new community at a whole new school. Obviously my middle school fed into the same high school as like four other middle schools, but I had my first girlfriend. I had my first band. My parents were like, oh, we're gonna leave now. And I, I cursed them out. I said, you never let me get a dog, you're making me move across the country. (laughs) I started skipping class. I just rebelled like crazy. I was very upset with, you know, uprooting me and then doing 10th, 11th, and 12th grade at a whole new school in LA. Ended up being one of the most fantastic experiences of my life in terms of getting perspective from a socioeconomic place. You know, we moved to like a upper middle-class neighborhood in LA. The kids there like had all sorts of different backgrounds that had nothing to do with the very working class neighborhood in Baltimore. I ended up like getting, gaining so much perspective and getting an amazing group of friends there started a new band within the first month. It ended up being a phenomenal experience, but very, very tough. Very, very much a a learning moment for me.
1: Can you describe one of those experiences that you feel like made it tough?
0: Yeah, yeah. I started studying music when I was in third grade. I started playing the saxophone. You know, was really passionate about it. But one thing that I never did, uh, at least in middle school or in my ninth grade in Baltimore, was marching band. And when I arrived at this massive high school in L.A., they did have a massive marching band, like a 250-person marching band. And it turns out I was a great saxophonist in Maryland, but a very poor one in L.A. And anyway, it was fine, but I was humbled. In the end, just made me more excited and, and ended up just pushing me. And I, I also was getting into guitar and and then in college, a lot of other instruments. So,
1: A lot of us are familiar with that experience when we realize that Maybe we're not quite as good as we thought we were. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of people's passions and creative projects wind up hitting a dead end. Joe went through this realization after a big high school move, a time when it's kind of crucial to have a reliable piece of your identity. But now, even that was being challenged. So for that reason, his resilience during this time is even more impressive. But I'm sure you've probably gone through something similar. Moves always have potential for academic, social, and psychological consequences, both good and bad. And actually, I think of my own move to Australia that I think helped me develop a tougher skin and a bit more empathy for outsiders. But Joe didn't just weather the moving experience. He wound up thriving and gained a new passion for music that he likely wouldn't have had otherwise. In fact, those humbling experiences in high school opened the door to appreciating and thinking about music in new ways. Something I think is at the root of how Joe began to gravitate towards technology. You you had this like, I don't know, desire to to improve yourself in in the music sense, but when did you become more interested in like technology and, and developing those skills?
0: Yeah, so I went to college at UC Davis. I I did double major. The first one was music composition, very unsurprising. But the other one was called Technocultural studies. How did you choose that? So specifically, I had two music teachers who uh, was like, hey, we're gonna learn about computational music and we're gonna use a tool. It was called MaxMSP. It still exists, it's still around. It was a precursor to Ableton Live. And we started learning this kind of programming language as a visual programming language. And he said, hey, you're really into this. Like, I, I was, like, just jumping. I, like, love... I was like, this is fascinating because we're making programmatic audio, essentially, right? And this is, like, for people who
1: don't know what programmatic audio is or, like, Ableton and all that. that, it's, it's like... Fancy garage band, you know, you can you can compose using the computer, essentially.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. He said, Hey, there's other classes to get even more advanced in this in this other program. It's within the fine art department. It's called technocultural studies is the program. What was Interesting is that it, half of it was about you know production. It was about software. It was a little bit about engineering from a physical perspective. The other half was sociology. So we were reading Heidegger and reading about Ray Kurzweil and transhumanism. I was obsessed with it, and, and it you know I done, both majors were equally exciting for me.
1: So this is basically the intersection of art and technology. It seems like the, the, the perfect major for someone who is maybe interested in how music and how art can scale and reach more people. So what are your parents thinking about all this?
0: I mean, as much as they never let me get a dog as a child, they were always very, very supportive about me exploring any of my interests. You're, you're mastering
1: these, these uh, new technologies to express, um, uh, express yourself in, in music how did it develop throughout your your college experience as you go towards the end of of your your bachelor's
0: yeah so i started getting obsessed with the idea of data controlling anything so really this idea of input and output i started to get really really into what does it you know how can we quantify things that are analog. So it could be our movement, physical movement, or it could be biometrics. I actually got obsessed with biometrics. Biometrics is basically the field of, of extracting data from the human body. So this could be your heart rate, right? This could be your skin conductivity, otherwise known as GSR. And I started to just get obsessed with this idea of extracting data from like the, the physical world and converting that into something that is either visual or audio. And and I started really, MaxMSP expanded their library when I was in college to include Jitter. Jitter was the visual component, so you could start creating, you know, all of these kind of really psychedelic or even just manipulating video through, again, programmatic interfaces that you're building.
1: Not everyone knows what they're passionate about or knows what career is even possible out of college. And unfortunately, there can be a big difference between pursuing what makes us happy and what actually puts food on the table. I think Joe has been lucky to find and create in the spaces where he can do both. But at the same time, the path he's taken has demanded an incredible amount of energy, effort, and focus. The conflict between passion and practicality isn't something new. People all over the world face the same thing every day. And maybe you're finding yourself at the end of high school, college, or wanting to change new careers, but you're not entirely sure what you want to do next. Should you pursue that interesting graduate program, even if it may not translate to a job? Or should you just find any old job that pays the bills until something new comes along that you'd actually like to pursue? Joe recommends the way through is to always prioritize learning.
0: I think the one thing I learned in grad school was how to learn. And that is so critical for anyone that is starting anything, is learning how to learn. And honestly, if everyone could master that, we wouldn't need graduate school. You can just literally, you know, the amount of resources and the amount of speed and access to resources that we have in this century is, you know, nothing like it was 100 years ago. Certainly nothing like 500 years ago. 100
1: years ago, what was most important was like memorizing the 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 right information and now it's totally switched it's like the gold of this age is knowing the right questions and if you can know the right questions and the the answers are only a click away
0: that is beautifully said tim that is beautifully said because honestly the asking the right questions is how you learn right it's i mean it's it's a combination of asking the right questions and knowing where to find the answers Right, And today, obviously with computers and the internet, like that is easier than ever. And, uh, you know, again, 10 years ago, even, I mean, maybe 10 years ago, you could say we were getting there, but the the amount of access, the amount of wealth of knowledge and experience and the amount of content that we can now access in five seconds is, has you know, the answers are all there. The answers are all there. So you have to be asking the right questions and there's just no reason why we all can't teach ourselves literally anything. Uh, Yeah, after graduate school, I, you know, I, again, I was still obsessed with data. And I, my thesis project in graduate school was about environmental sensing. So I developed a wearable environmental sensing project that connected to the internet. Back in 2010, 2011, you know, this was really hot, really exciting. And, uh, And what was exciting was my thesis got a ton of attention. Got lots of attention because it was like uh, like environmental people loved it hardware people loved it the internet kind of um you know database and, and data communities were like this is so exciting like this is enabling anyone to be publishing in real time what is the air quality outside of their house or in their house wait, wait, so what was the thesis what it turned into was called the air quality egg and you can you can look that up it definitely still exists today in some form and this was again 2011 or 2012 that we did a Kickstarter. So I got together with this kind of data community that I started to, to meet with, specifically um, this uh, gentleman named Ed Borden and Usman Hakat. I think we, we closed with maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars. But at that time, that was a massive number. Yeah, huge, especially
1: when like, like crowdfunding is brand new and, and also just a little bit description of what it looks like. It comes in white and black and it looks like a little Tamagotchi. If you remember those, this has just data on what your air quality looks like.
0: Uh, and it's, a, it's cute looking. It's very cute. And at the time it was pretty groundbreaking, you know, because we were utilizing all these new technologies, but we were also empowering people. And this idea of like citizen science and empowering yourself through data was a beautiful story that just got picked up everywhere. You know, every major tech blog and, you know, the New York Times, like we got it everywhere. And it was really exciting because we ended up traveling literally all around the world, getting invited to to present the project, you know, do installations all over the place. With the air quality egg gaining so much traction,
1: it opened up new doors for Joe to take the invention around the world. Like he mentioned, the air quality egg is a small device that is able to read the changes of different particles in the air. It can detect compounds such as NO2 and CO2 to determine the quality of air, as the name implies. Joe was able to take what he had learned in school and apply it to an invention that benefited people on a global scale. For Joe, this meant, well, going to a lot of interesting locations. Can you tell me about one of the places that you traveled to or one of the talks that you gave that like stands out to you as a moment that feels significant?
0: One that really sticks out is um, Montenegro. There is a UN, the UNEP, the UN Environmental Program, invited us to Montenegro. Right at this point I'm, you know, 24 years old and had never scaled up production or manufacturing of a product. What ended up happening was we did we got it all together finally especially because we were so behind that we didn't even have time to ship it. So we packed these things in bags. The community, they were so excited. The UNEP had invited mostly technical engineering people or science people from the local university. I did definitely made a friend. He was a very special gentleman. He was absolutely on the spectrum. And he actually on like, I think it was a three-day workshop. And uh, and he said, hey, uh, would you like to come and you know have dinner with my family? And we, of course, said yes. His family lived on a, a small farm. And they actually grew most of their food. They had uh, sheep and cows. While this guy was definitely something of a savant, you know, he definitely was a technical guy. His parents were not. His parents were straight up farmers. And uh, and it was an amazing dichotomy, you know, coming from giving this technical workshop at the UN in Montenegro to, you know, this this home
1: So you have all this great experience in Montenegro and you have all these Kickstarter backers that are supporting the project, but you don't really have a way to mass produce the product. So you realize you have to offload manufacturing and production to really scale. So what happens after you start working with a hardware manufacturer?
0: After I brought in this hardware uh, manufacturing you know, company from there, from Ithaca, you know, they very much were like, okay, we know how to scale something. We have done this before. We're going to kind of take control. And at the moment I was like, great, like fantastic. Like I will work with you. Like here's all of the firmware that I've written. And And what ended up happening was that, you know, they were kind of far away and kind of, you know, Zoom culture didn't exist that much. I definitely lost control of kind of like how things were going, right? Especially on the development and production process. And what ended up happening was there were just delay after delay after delay um, on the production front. What happened was that we promised to deliver. I think we promised it would take one year. It took more than two years to deliver those 1,200 or 1,500 units. There was like vitriol in the community message boards. I learned so much around, you know, what does community mean for a product in terms of like customers, right? Because they thought of themselves as customers and, and I wanted to think of them as customers. But because I definitely gave up control over the production process, like I could only just relay what was happening, what was being told to me. And it was very difficult. It was a huge learning lesson. What happened at that moment is I was like super sour. I was like, oh my God, people are awful. And I was like, this is uh, like, I'm trying to be, you know, as, as kind of polite and and excited and, and stay positive, but like, you know, just sometimes people are horrible. And, and in 2012, it's the same as, as 2021. There's just, like you said, there's just all, everyone has a voice, everyone has a keyboard.
1: When it comes to crowdfunding, pleasing your community is crucial. After experiencing delay after delay with his Kickstarter, his community of backers were becoming increasingly frustrated. With less of the process in his control, handing the project over to Ethica meant Joe could move towards the next endeavor. This meant going from a small team to working with big businesses. But Joe was about to experience some of the more difficult aspects of this new path.
0: And, uh, and so I got burnt out after about uh, maybe three years of that and decided I want to go back to making things for people. And, uh, and so that's when I joined um, Planeta. Planeta is a very small, um, very boutique product R&D studio that was based in the East Village on Avenue B. But uh, when I joined, we were more of a studio that was working with different partners, building different, mostly software, uh, developing different ideas for different people. One of those was Giphy. Before Snapchat was massive, they were creating filters and overlays and using even some 3D volumetric computation in the camera to kind of create different effects. And it was definitely very, very new, but, um, you know, we were basically doing experiments in visuals, in cameras, in video, moving images, all sorts of um, creative applications for that. You know, really, if, if our goal here is to evolve the way that we experience moving images, whether that's a GIF or a video, um, I wanted to take that and try to think about hardware that is you know, single purpose hardware, essentially. How do we evolve what we think about when we think about a display? And how do we evolve the way that we um, consume video content um, that is not something in the browser or in an app on your phone? I started just thinking of ideas and and pitching them on ideas on how we can change that and how we can think about a, um, you know, hardware as a medium, uh, for the content, right? That's not again, a, a, something that you take a phone call on. It's not the same thing that you're, um, you know, tweeting on it's, uh, it's something else completely. So what, how did this pitch go over? It was great. It was great. I mean, like, I'll be very frank with you. Uh, Giphy was uh, very well funded at the time. And so it was an easy pitch and, and they were like, great. Here's a budget. Let's start experimenting. This episode is brought to you by Carvana. Carvana is in the business of driving you happy. They put you in control of financing your car with payment plans that fit your plans. And their simple tools help you customize your down payment and monthly payments so you can instantly see a variety of cars that fit your budget. No surprises, no hidden fees. So to buy a car that makes you happy, visit Carvana.com or download the app. Anyway, we we did a lot of experiments, but really I was obsessed with how can we um, take the content that hopefully is special to you, hopefully is meaningful and translate the consumption of that, the experiencing of that content into an equally magical, special, unique experience that is not just fucking swiping or double tapping on Instagram. The idea of an immutable display, meaning a display that can never be changed by the end user, was one of the experiments. Was one of the kind of uh, places that that led to. And at that moment, there was just a massive light bulb. This idea of selling a video, of buying a video, collecting a video. What does that? What are the implications that are created for um, publishers, for artists? for independent creators of any kind, whether that's a vlogger or whether that's an artist. And then what does it mean for personal content? Because the rise of TikTok has been meteoric, right? TikTok is essentially everyone being creative with video, everyone sharing video, video being this kind of medium that is just, is just—it's—it's what it's done is proven that this generation is 100% about video as a content type. There is just no way to gift a video. There is no way to value a video the same way that we've been framing photographs, framing art prints, framing posters of, of celebrities and, and sports and athletes, and et cetera. That doesn't exist for video. And so that light bulb moment was uh, at the very beginning of 2018. Um, Alex Chung was uh, and, and Nick Dangerfield both were like, this is worth exploring. Alex was like, you need to just found the company right now and, and, and we'll find some money and let's do this because the opportunities are just, uh, almost universal.
1: What did you think about that, that starting a company right now around this idea? Like, were you like, hell yeah. Were you nervous? What were your emotions surrounding that?
0: Totally nervous. These two guys are coming from venture backed companies. They understand what it means to like grow and scale a venture backed company, which is totally foreign to me at that point, at least from the perspective of the actual, you know, creator, the founders, you know, the, the showrunner. I was like this. That's a little bit nuts. That sounds a little bit crazy. Uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs>
1: What I love about this project is it combines the artistry that Joe had in his youth with saxophone, the nexus of art and technology he explored during college, the hardware that he developed with the Air Quality Egg, and the photo and video experimentation he was doing at Giphy. Everything seemed to culminate in this project
0: definitely, I was not going to say no to this idea. I definitely remember uh, going home and my girlfriend at the time, I was like, this just came up today, this idea. And uh, I think I'm going to do it. But I think that it's going to change like everything about how I think about work and what my relationship to like getting things done is. And, you know, the reality is I've never had like a job job. This you know, idea of like working to build a company versus uh, working towards building ideas and projects is very, very different. It's incredibly, incredibly different. But the idea of building a company is here is a concept that you are defining, fully you are defining the concept. Here are the, you know, go to market launch business strategies. Here are the goalposts that you have to set for yourself, you know, monthly, quarterly, yearly. And more than that, you have to sustain your entity. And as a venture-backed company, that is one of the most stressful things. And I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this podcast have, you know, either raised money or are trying to raise money. They either are pre-launch, maybe they're still at the napkin, you know, idea stage, or maybe they already have launched and are trying to either pivot or create new markers of success. The founder's outlook is just a, a totally different style of approach. You're not just solving problems, you are looking at the future and what the solutions today will mean for the problems tomorrow.
1: also have to think about what is the best, I guess, market to tackle first when thinking about like, all right, how can we make video special? And so how did
0: you start to partner with artists? I mean, first of all, I believe all new ideas come from art in some way. I I fully believe that. I also look at this audience of people who spend money on art, and that's an audience that values content. That's an audience that truly understands the value of content, period, whether that's a painting or a photograph or a video. And it's also a very small audience. And, you know, growing a hardware company, scaling a hardware company is extremely difficult. And I knew that our production would be slow to ramp. But what that means is the first audiences that we market towards, or the first audiences that we're catering towards, the first content types and creators should be artists because they value scarcity. And that was one of the kind of core value adds that our product creates for digital content. Scarcity and authenticity are the two things that making a video physical can create.
1: And so what other artists did you partner with for that first, uh, I guess, launch?
0: It was amazing. I had been talking a lot with uh, Rhizome. Rhizome is the kind of new media arm of the new museum. And uh, Ryzen was very excited about the idea. I was meeting with the uh, CEO there quite a bit and essentially said, we would like you to curate this first collection, this inaugural collection. We also brought in Data Editions. They're another company, they're based in the UK. Um, they're a curatorial entity. They represent artists and curate collections uh, you know, in different galleries and spaces and events and et cetera. And then a third gallery was called Transfer Gallery. They're based in LA now. And we had them curate a a selection of artists that we actually commissioned to create artwork, video art um, for that first set of video prints. they were all signed, they were all numbered. Everything was an addition of, I think, 10 or 25. And uh, and that scarcity, the scarcity paired with the authenticity for the digital asset um, was really exciting to, you know, first of all, introduce that to the creators and, and create that opportunity for the creators to, you know, for the first time, be able to edition and sell a video piece that they made. But then for the collector, equally exciting for them to own an addition signed digital piece of art.
1: Recreating a physical copy of digital art opens a new avenue for collectors to appreciate that art. I'm actually thinking of one of my friends, Ethan, right now. He's deep into the crypto space and more recently became an avid NFT collector. Right now, the only way he can show off his digital art collection and experience this collection is by putting it absolutely everywhere he lives digitally. A social profile picture, his phone lock screen, his computer's home screen. But if we boil it down, all he really wants is to enjoy his digital collection. And although experiencing them digitally is great, I think having a physical representation makes the art feel a bit more there. With a physical recreation, All of the human senses are now at play. Sight, sound, touch, maybe even smell. And we're physical beings that live in the physical world, so it makes sense that there would be a desire to materialize some of those digital assets. That materialization also allows people to understand the scarcity of the digital asset. Right now, there's this joke that people are just copy-pasting JPEGs and buying JPEGs, and to a certain degree, yeah, kinda. But in reality, there is a legitimate owner. And that can be hard for people to understand when these objects exist only in the digital world. But, on the other hand, people understand ownership completely when it's in the physical world. So these physical recreations basically mimic the scarcity and value of the digital asset in a way people can understand. And as the public became more educated on this new phenomena, Joe had to get to work selling his vision. So you have these collaborations with these first artists. How does that lead to a collaboration with people?
0: Our pitch at that point became very easy to the creators, especially the digitally native creators. We would say to them, hey, you've got an Instagram, you've got hundreds of thousands of followers, you're getting thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of likes on your posts. Uh, We have a new way for you to monetize your content, a new way for you to sell it, but also a new way for you to connect with your collectors, your audience, your fans. Right? That, again, is not just a swipe or a double tap, uh, a like on on social or, or on your website. And so the pitch was, hey, you're already making the content. We're, we're just gonna print it for you. You know, it, it took a while, obviously. We were a brand new company. You know, building up a profile, building up an, an audience and a community was very slow at first um, because we we're very niche. And so essentially we had just a, you know, internally a list of our favorite creators and we were just doing cold outreach like crazy all the way through the pandemic. And Beeple was one of those artists. Beeple was someone I had followed for, I don't know, a couple of years. You know, his art's nuts. And uh, usually it's not video either, which is an interesting thing, but uh, I definitely was like, we got to just be reaching out to everyone. And he was one of them. He wrote back, I think in January or February. We sent him a couple units to test. Didn't hear back from him until probably September or October of 2020. He said, "Have you guys heard of NFTs?" And we we're like, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We have heard of NFTs." Actually, by the end of 2020, uh, you know, Beeple had said, "Hey, I did this thing on Nifty Gateway," and he's like, "I'm going to do another one." But for my next one, I want every single NFT to come with an infinite object. And you know, he very, very plainly was like, "I don't think my audience knows anything about blockchain." I don't think my audience has any idea what crypto is or means or what NFTs even stand for. But I know that they understand what limited edition merchandise is. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I've been saying. Our product makes NFTs understandable to people who have no idea what Ethereum means, but know what limited edition art is. And when it comes to digital art, which is what NFTs are the best catered for, obviously... Uh, our product makes digital art very, very understandable. It makes it scarce and it makes it authentic, provably authentic. But in, yeah, I think it was at the beginning of December that he did that second NFT drop that came with an infinite object. I think he made $4 million in a weekend, uh, which was at the time record breaking. What did you think of that? Because like you are part of like this massive uh,
1: milestone for NFTs and, um, and 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 now your company.
0: What was universally true and recognized by both Beeple himself, as well as the Nifty Gateway guys, was that part of the reason it was so successful, you know, he had already done one or two drops on Nifty Gateway. They were pretty successful, but they were not millions of dollars successful. And they all of them attributed it to having this physical be a part of it. And telling people, yes, you are collecting a digital piece of art that is coming in the form of an NFT, but you're also going to receive a limited edition physical that is going to arrive at your doorstep and you'll be able to show off. Because what we've discovered, and this is true for NBA Top Shot especially, it's such a bummer to spend, you know, $500 or $5,000 on a piece of digital content and then have to open Safari on your phone to show your friend. That is such a, 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 you know, massive letdown and such an easy thing to almost laugh at. But when you get something that is uh, a physical twin, a representation of this blockchain asset in your hand, in a beautiful object that you get to display, to show off, to uh, exhibit in a gallery, even if you wanted, the meaningfulness is instantly communicated. The value is instantly communicated and the excitement is just amplified exponentially because we're still physical people, right? As much as everything is moving to digital and as much as what, you know, NFTs and blockchain represent, we're still physical beings. And we're always, at least uh, for the foreseeable future, we're going to really value our space that we live in, that we work in. And we're going to really value the objects that we put in that space.
1: NFTs, once again, they stand for non-fungible tokens, and they're basically non-replaceable items like a photo or video stored in a unit of data as proof of ownership. It's a digital way of saying, hey, this photo or video, it's 100% yours. So it isn't too hard to see why Beeple, a famous digital artist and graphic designer, thought that Joe's tech would work great paired with NFTs. Okay, so what is an infinite object? Well, an infinite object is a physical copy of that photo or video. It's like when you buy something online that you technically already own or paid for, but then you finally get to hold it in your hands once it's delivered. And while Joe's concept of infinite objects has led him to collab with artists, athletes, and A-list celebrities, there were still some low points he had to get through first. It sounds like it was all easy. Was there anything hard or...
0: Nothing is easy. Nothing is easy. We launched in October of 2019. By December... We had sold maybe 100 units in that first quarter, like nothing. And what we recognized was from a strategy standpoint, art is so exciting because people will pay money for it. Art is so exciting because um, the value is really high and the idea of scarcity and authenticity are built in. But the scalability, like in terms of growing, is so slow in art. And so there was a critical moment of like talking to my investors, you know, obviously looking at like what was in front of us in terms of roadmap and and making this really kind of ridiculous decision to say, okay, forget about waiting a year, 18 months to launch the next phase. We need to get this product into people's hands. We looked strategically and and said, honestly, the kind of the, the lesson here is we had control over one thing that is our product. If we are selling our product to people, what content do they have control over? That's their content. So the kind of strategic decision to say we're going to immediately jump right into user-generated content now was like very much a you know a hard decision. And you know, we only had one full-time engineer, two part-time engineers, and we just brought in contractors to, I mean, the team was six people at this point. And so it was a very hard, very intense, like two months of running, even like working through Christmas and New Year's, like just saying, if we want to be able to prove anything next year, we have to show growth. We have to show that people love what we're making outside of just this niche art audience. And thank God we did because it was a massive success. Like during the pandemic and during Christmas of last year, just a huge spike in sales uh, uh, focused around user-generated content. These audiences for us um, are equally valuable from a revenue perspective, from a growth perspective, and from a brand perspective, honestly. And it went really, really well because we identified those audiences of weddings, of uh, you know young couples, of pets, of babies, of life moments that people are putting on stories on Instagram, people are putting on Snapchat, people are putting on TikTok. Um, but we, we made that very difficult decision to say, We'll keep reaching out to artists, but fuck art for right now. We need to get this into people's hands and what we can control is our product and who we're marketing it to and what content they're putting on it. So we definitely would not have had the numbers to be able to survive, to be able to prove that we've got something valid that is gaining traction by not saying scrap the roadmap, scrap it and and move.
1: So what would you say the future of uh, Infinite Objects is today?
0: We love what NFTs represent. You know, we are very in parallel with the entire concept of what NFTs mean. Scarcity, authenticity, um, ownership. And these things are so exciting. The amount of opportunities that are in front of us that are around NFTs whether that is um, collaborating with artists, whether that is launching our own end-to-end NFT experiences, whether that is working with um, marketplaces and other um, e-commerce platforms, because really what's going to happen, what we're going to see now, I think, is the experience of purchasing an NFT will obviously migrate to to fiat, to US dollars. And what we're going to see is all of these new IP holders jump in and say, hey, our audience loves digital collectibles. Today, no one understands digital collectibles unless you're very young Gen Z and you've been spending money in Roblox. The idea of like buying, you know, something for your character or buying an asset in a digital space is already native to those really young kids. And uh, those are the kids that are going to be investing in stuff and buying stuff. And this is going to be faster than we think. We're going to be participating in communities. We're going to be participating as fans, as audiences by purchasing digital collectibles. And so we definitely have um, moved all of our engineering uh, energy in towards what those integrations look like into what our NFT collaborations can look like and how creating physicals of digital assets becomes exciting for everyone um, on a really mainstream scale. So that is definitely our focus. That's our focus right now.
1: Creating infinite objects, Joe managed to merge his love for art and music with his love for technology. And it all began with that high school kid trying to learn guitar after moving to LA and with that UC Davis student exploring his interest in technocultural studies. No one would have known that Joe was going to grow up to work with digital artists and eventually become CEO of his own company. But there's a thread I see in his story that might have helped him get to where he is today. No matter what he was interested, be it music, tech, or video production, Joe didn't hesitate to go after those things that drew him in. With the entrepreneurial mindset he developed running his dog walking business, and with the support of his parents, Joe followed his passions and maintained his curiosity. He's still the same kid that was interested in biofeedback, asking questions and trying to see where the answers would lead him. And he was focused on something that I personally think is very important. He's focused on people. Joe invested in communities and in finding a way to add value to those moments captured on camera now, he's helping people bridge their real physical lives to a rapidly growing digital world. But somehow for Joe, I'm thinking that merging art with technology is only the beginning. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
0: Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lynn. Our Audio Editing Team Lead is Adrian Tapia. With support from... Irene Van Burkle. Matt Fernandez. Renee Cannon. Sophia Donner. Maura Lynch. Zoe Maddox, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez. Michael Chung. Nicholas Guzman. Aaron Devereaux. Sanessa Gisley. And Lois Choi. Our Outreach and Research Lead is Kenny Ong. With support from... Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Sharice Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Asherdia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design
1: team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya,
0: Tiffany Dane.
1: Jonathan Ross,
0: and Diana Marie Candelza.
1: To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.